why the secrecy and the suppression of this aspect of the story. It's not that it's like, I don't believe you or I disagree. It's just like, I like getting new information, but it's like, it's hard because it goes against everything that you're told. You know, here with, uh, you know, Dr. Ali's, you know, approach was so different. Um, it was to look at the environmental surroundings and try to understand what could be really causing this. Like what's changed in your environment? What, what toxins are there in your environment? I think that the version of me before my wife became ill would have said like, no, 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 no. You don't question this stuff. You just do it. Today we're with Mike, and Mike, I wanted to just start by giving you the chance to expand a little bit on on what it is that you do and why you found it so important to kind of to dive into that work. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show, Jordan. Um, yeah, I do a few things. Um, I've been a screenwriter in um, Hollywood uh, to a degree for um, you know more than a decade now, and. Um, uh, but I ended up making uh, this documentary, uh, The Viral Delusion, uh, out of really out of personal experience that goes back a long time um, to uh, when my, my wife became ill and we were in our early 30s. And the whole experience gave us, um, uh, it really changed our, our um, outlook on the medical system. And, um, and uh, it was, um, it was quite an experience and it led us to doing years of research on medical history. And um, we ended up discovering a whole world of doctors and scientists that have been, um, their voices have been uh, suppressed uh, for, you know, really more than a hundred years. And um, it's just an incredible story. So, um, well, you know, we had learned so much over the years um, that when the whole COVID narrative began, um, I was already in touch with um, a lot of really interesting doctors and scientists and journalists who had a very, very different take on what was happening. And um, some of it, uh, some of their perspective I already knew. And, and um, because I had already discovered it and some of it was new to me. And so I really launched into this second research phase, um, trying to understand what, what, what these doctors and scientists were saying, because they were all, this group of doctors and scientists who didn't even know each other, were all saying the same thing. Hmm. And um, I wanted to understand what was this perspective? Because it's really different than the mainstream. And um, the more I, I dived in, the more I discovered that there, there was a, a, a really uh, extraordinary history here that hadn't been told. And it gave a, a totally new light on, on um, so-called pandemic. And eventually I realized somebody's got to tell this story because it's so extraordinary. And um, I had never made a documentary before, um, but uh, I, just, uh, I just launched in. I felt like um, not only was it really important to get these um, voices out there for people, but for me, it was just an incredible opportunity to um, to tell this story as a as a filmmaker. Um, so um, so you know, I started calling these uh, these these unbelievably brilliant people, and they actually returned my phone call. <laughs> 
and so you know off, uh, uh, you know i was kind of like off and running you know um and it was just so it uh it's sort of i i was in the film world already but uh this was just a very special opportunity um and um i think i think what we ended up with was extraordinary and you know i, I set out to make a two-hour documentary film and i ended up making a uh seven and a half hour documentary series right uh because there were just so many incredible voices to share um so uh i mean that's kind of like a, a really sort of big picture uh look at yeah. at everything um but uh you know in terms of um in terms of the content um and and the backstory um well, I'll, I'll tell my, my wife's story. Um, when uh, we were in our early 30s, maybe I think just turned 30, um, my wife started getting, um, her, her knees started swelling up. They, were, they became really huge. And um, it would go away after a couple of weeks and then it would come back a couple of weeks later. And it started getting worse and worse. And she couldn't, um, she, she had great difficulty walking. And um, we went to, well, she went to uh, the best rheumatologist that she could find. And we lived in New York City. So, you know, Columbia University and NYU and all these top people. And they all told her the same thing, which is that she had early onset arthritis and um, she was never really going to be able to walk again. And, uh, and she was 30. And I remember walking down Sixth Avenue in Brooklyn and uh, there were tears in her eyes. And um, she had just brought Kane, and they had all told her that's the, the best we can do is buy a cane and we can give you um, a steroid treatment that will take some of the pain away. And, um, and, uh, but it's, you know, my wife actually looked it up later and, and discovered that that treatment drastically uh, raises your chances of dying in your, in your fifties. Hmm. Um, and uh it was just it was just terrifying and uh and i mean it was just so sad so um i i happened to hear on alternative radio in new york back when there was still kind of alternative radio in new york um this doctor and he was sounded so brilliant and he was he hated mainstream medicine he just hated it um and he had been the chief pathologist at a hospital in New York, and he had left because he was so fed up with uh, the what's called the standard of care, which is a sort of prescribed set of ways of diagnosing and, and treating uh, people. And so I, I said to my wife, like, maybe you should just go talk to this guy and see if he's got anything to, to say, you know? And um, she did, and uh, he asked her if she was an athlete. And she was like, no, I'm definitely not an athlete. Um, and he said, well, what does your bathroom look like? And uh, it was such a weird question. But my wife was like, well, I hate my bathroom. And he was like, is the paint peeling on the walls? And she was like, yeah, it is. And he goes, okay, look, we're going to run some tests, but you probably have a mold allergy. And you probably have a mold problem in your bathroom. That's what's making it worse. So what you should do is you should get out of that apartment. and." Um, and and then we'll see what happens. So we left that apartment right away. Our, 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 we ended our lease and 
um, my wife got better right away. And uh, that was more than 15 years ago, and it's never bothered her again. Uh, wow. That's it. So, you know, the, the mainstream um, approach was to basically not, there was no real understanding of where it could be coming from, uh, was to claim that it was genetic, and then to prescribe, um, you know, a sort of symptom reducer, an anti-inflammatory, and give her king. Uh, and, you know, here, were, uh, you know, Dr. Ali's, you know, approach was so different. Um, it was to look at the environmental surroundings and try to understand what could be really causing this. Like, what's changed in your environment? What, what toxins are there in your environment? And um, he was such a funny guy. He, uh, I went in there for the second um, checkup and he held my hand and he held my wife's hand in his little office. And he said, I want you to think about all the children that died in the Iraq war. And these sanctions in Iraq, he goes that that pales in comparison to the Lipitor scam alone. Be very careful, <laughs> modern medicine. He said, "Be very careful. Don't believe a word you read in the new Enron Journal of Medicine." So, so, I, and I don't mean to cut you off, but whenever Ooh. we whenever we we talk about modern medicine in this conversation as we go forward, what what does that mean? And is it just the the standard of care is that their typical prescribing methods what what is it about you know that's that's a great question and it's a million things right it's a okay. lot of different things um it's it's you know and and in the viral delusion we speak very specifically about the field of virology right which i can speak to with more um depth and, and specificity um but there's there's just there's so you know, it's this this huge uh, industrial cartel, modern medicine today, and um, so it, it can mean um, it can mean so many different things. Um, and, and you know, one way of thinking about it is that there used to be a real variety of medicine in America, okay. a huge variety of medicine, some of which was terrible and some of which was fantastic. Um, but in the in the early 20th century, uh, a number of figures um, got together and really tried to take over medicine, American medicine, uh, namely, of course, Rockefeller. Uh, but he didn't do it alone. He did it with with a few other um, characters. And, um, you know, Rockefeller himself had a had a you know, a very sketchy past in medicine. He, he was actually, he was literally, well, not literally, but he was, he was almost literally a snake oil salesman. When he had first discovered oil, the first thing he tried to do with it um, was to sell it as a medicine. And he, so he went around selling little jars of his petroleum uh, and, and to give to people as, very, as a cure for various things. And he found out that the main thing that it did was it, it, it um, I don't get, I don't want to get too gross, but it, it you know, it gave you um, the runs if you drank his petroleum. So he then repackaged it and sold it as a constipation medicine. You know, th th this was like this is the level of character that we're dealing with, and um, and so he got together with some some uh, people in the uh, in the AMA, which had started as like a the American Medical Association, which had started as a um, as kind of a, a guild for doctors, um, and uh, 
And then what they did is they basically said, if you practice our certain kind of medicine, which is going to be largely based on the purchase of Rockefeller's pharmaceuticals, which is deriving from oil, then you're going to be protected by the AMA. And if you don't, if you practice a different kind of medicine, you're going to be attacked by the AMA. And um, they, it, it's, it's an incredible story. Uh, and it has, this is sort of aside from my documentary, but you know, when you end up doing medical research, you end up sort of discovering all of this different stuff. So uh, what they did is they started these, these medical journals. And um, if you advertised in the medical journals, they would, um, they would print articles about your, uh, you know, your, your uh, medical products that were laudatory. And not just medical products, even food, the same thing. If you didn't, they would attack you and they would say, you, you know, you don't have our approval. This is not safe. And they amassed a, a pretty penny doing that. They then took that fortune and they lobbied state governments um, to form licensing boards for doctors. And then they got their own doctors appointed to those licensing boards. And they would uh, essentially say, if you follow the Rockefeller AMA medicine, then you could be licensed. But if you didn't, we wouldn't license you as a doctor. And what that, there used to be all sorts of different kinds of medical schools in this country. But um, that, uh, chiefly with Rockefeller then funding certain schools, which created uh, medical schools in his in the, in the image of his sort of pharmaceutical image, um, that just basically destroyed all the other forms of medicine in this country. And, um, you know, if you go back and you look like 150 years ago at, at what was being sold, uh, you'll see, for instance, that um, a lot of like Native American imagery was on the bottles because it was well known that Native Americans had great medicine. They were very healthy people. And um, they knew the land, they knew the herbs, they knew what grew, what, they had a whole tradition, tr many traditions of uh, how to use what was around you to stay healthy. And um, that doesn't exist anymore. That's co been completely devastated, completely destroyed. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the, the story of, of what's called modern medicine is, it's massive, and I, you know, I just, um, I just got a new book uh, that I'm really excited uh, uh, to read to launch in because it's, it's just there's such an uh, an extraordinary story there. Um, but uh, the the documentary uh, series that I ended up doing um, was on the history of virology, mm -hmm. which um, is just mind blowingly bizarre once you actually delve into it. Yeah, and I want to I want to summarize the 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 research part of it before we get too far into the the documentary. Because yeah. so is, do you think that there's an underlying I don't want to make any assumptions or or speak for you, but is there like this underlying presence of like the motivation behind what the medical practices are doing so like with the with the Rockefeller system was it because he was funding it that he could control the narrative behind it? Is that kind of the concern around these like i guess my question is why why would we assume 
that you know modern medicine just as a generic term here doesn't have our best interest at heart yeah I mean, it's sort of a funny question because we all naturally assume that there's almost right. this like it's almost like a like a jungian you know uh cons like like profound archetypal concept mm -hmm. that that the shaman the doctor cares about us you know that 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 we we but you know we live in a capitalist economy and you know do you assume that monsanto when they you know spray your food has your best interest at heart you know do you assume that you know when you um you know when you when you go buy a car you know what they really want is to help you get from a to b is you know like comfortably as you can no they, they want to make money and they're they, they happen to manufacture cars that's how the system is built so um you know i think that you know as I, one doctor uh you know i remember speaking to pam popper you know she talks about like, when, when people buy their car they 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 often do far more research shop you know shopping around than when they when they buy their cancer cure you know a lot of times people go they, they go to a hospital you know, and they walk in and, you know, they get diagnosed and, you know, 45 minutes later, they're, they're already, they've already been sold. It's already, you know, they're already on the conveyor belt of, of cure, right? So-called cure. You know, I think, again, going back to like Dr. Ali and his point was that, um, the, the point is not to, you know, um, disparage, uh, anyone or, or any and anything that's offered to us, I mean, we're free people, but it's to remember that we're free thinking people. I mean, you know, God, the universe, evolution, or whatever you want to say, somehow we have brains, you know, that we, we can use to think critically about things. And, um, and I remember, I mean, I, I, my, my past was in, was actually in foreign affairs. Like I, I got my master's degree in international politics and I went to work at the state department and, I, I remember looking around and thinking that a lot of these people don't actually think critically about international affairs. I, I can't believe this is mind boggling. Like I, I'm, I'm at the state department, you know, the, but at that point in my life, I didn't think critically about the medical system. I just thought critically about this little field that I understood really, really well, you know? And so it's, we're, we're, um, you know, it's, we're sort of indoctrinated or we grow up in a way that says, well, we should just kind of take these things for granted. Uh, you know, every, of course, everybody cares about you and so on. And the, the point is, uh, we have to think critically about these things yeah. and they exist within a political and an economic context. There's history to everything that, that that's happened. Um, so nothing's, you know, we don't sort of march towards um, maybe the, the, uh, perfection uh, that we might assume, right? We've, we've, we've been on this planet for God knows how long, you know, have we achieved, you know, utopia yet? You know, have we achieved, you know, peace and justice and, you know, like, you know, pure joy and eternal bliss? Every, no, but like, <laughs> you know, so we have to think critically about our, our what's around us. And, and medicine is the same way. I mean, I, I would say actually it's, it's, much more important to think critically about medicine because our lives are at stake, literally. So, uh, but there's, um, I think, a very uh, effective um, marketing campaign 
that says you aren't smart enough, you are not educated enough to think critically about any of this stuff. You have to just trust us. And that would be uh, dangerous in any situation, but it's particularly dangerous because there's also a monopoly on medical care, at least in this country and in many countries now, um, where there's one standard of care and there's very little criticism that's allowed of that standard of care. And um, so, you know, to be in that situation is, again, it's, it's just a lot of people just, they haven't had an opportunity to step back and realize that. And, you know, they don't teach the history of, of, of medicine in high school, right? Uh, they, they don't give you the political context for where this stuff's coming from. Um, but there's an extraordinary amount of money that's being made. And then we've gone from, you know, me- the medical system being, you know, two, uh, like 2% of the American economy a hundred years ago to 20% of the American economy today. We're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that are, you know, it's just an extraordinary amount of money. So, um, you know, if you, if you want to get on a conveyor belt and just, you know, let things happen to you, I, I've got no problem with that, but I'm what I, I I think there's an opportunity for people who are interested to step back and say, oh, actually, there's a lot of really interesting um, criticism of uh, nearly everything in the medical system uh, today. That's that's in the monopolized medical system. What what wow? What else is out there? You know, what are the other perspectives? And when you do that, it's really, um, I, I, I found it life-changing. I mean, my, my wife literally, the only reason she can walk is because we did that. Right. And, um, and the more we've uh, understood what these other perspectives are, the healthier we've been. Um, so now we have lots of, of stories like that where we experienced something um, that we understood would have been diagnosed one way in the modern medical system. But then we step back and we said to ourselves, okay, let's think about this critically. What, what would, you know, Dr. Polevsky think about this? What would Dr. Ali think about this? What would this scientist think about this? And all of a sudden we're able to find the actual reason why we got sick. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity for people. And, you know, if they take it, don't take it. That's up to them, you know. They're free people. Well, what what prompted the your initial medical research? Because you have a unique, at least from what I found, a unique perspective on, especially the, the the virus and what's in the documentary. But I think a lot of that research started prior to that. Was it just your wife's injury, or or well, or lack thereof, or was it what actually prompted the research? And then what was your approach to that research? So um, after after my wife uh, got better. And we had had a few conversations with Dr. Ali, um, you know, only a few years later um, that uh, she was pregnant with our son. And so um, we decided to look at the vaccine question uh, because, you know, it was just kind of like, well, you know what? We should just look into this. I think that the version of me before my wife became ill would have said like, no, 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 no. You don't question this stuff. 
you just do it, you know? And uh, even, I remember even when she first uh, brought it up, I was like, God, all right, I'll look into it, but <laughs> you know, we should, we should do this, you know? And, um, and the first book, so, th so she, she went out and did a little research. She said, what would be a good book, you know, to start exploring this topic? You know, so the first book she she got was uh, by Mary Holland, who uh, is a lawyer. Um, she's a professor of law at NYU, and she wrote about um, the hidden um, legal structure and the 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 hidden legal stories uh, behind the vaccine industry. Um, and it was largely about um, the extraordinary amount of uh, extraordinary number of people who had been injured from vaccines and what steps uh, the pharmaceutical industry, the vaccine industry uh, had taken to make sure that they didn't have to pay, pay those people out. Um, and uh, it's a whole, again, it's, it's a whole political economic story of how they lobbied Congress and worked together with Congress to establish a, 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 a sort of a shadow legal system uh, in the United States to protect themselves from lawsuits of people who have been injured by vaccines. So that was interesting, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, here I am thinking, we've got to do this, you know, our, our, and, and then you start to think to yourself, wow, that's, that's, um, that's a little bit scary, right? I mean, the, the motto is these things are safe and they're effective, right? So we started to say, okay, they are obviously not safe, right? You have all, you have like US Supreme Court rulings that say, you know, to paraphrase something like vac, we, we know that vaccines are unavoidably dangerous, right? Like th that's a quote from the Supreme Court, right? That we have this litany of, of lawsuits uh, uh, that, that where the companies have been found, you know, guilty for harming people, right? But to me, there was the kind of the effective thing. Well, okay, there's maybe this little danger here, but what about, you know, the danger of getting polio or the danger of getting smallpox or something like that? So I started looking into that question um, while my wife was kind of more focused on the danger question and the, the, the how do we establish like a ratio of, of you know, weighing the uh, the dangers against the, uh, be the you know the benefits, and I'm looking at the benefits question. Well, you know, what's the history here? And what I discovered was even more surprising than what I had discovered. What we had discovered about the dangers, which was that the whole story of the efficacy of vaccines is much more marketing than truth. And I would say, when I say much more marketing than truth, I don't think there's an iota of truth in it. I think that, um, well, what I discovered was that, um, I, I, where do I even begin? I mean, you could begin with like, you could pick your, you could pick your disease in which it's claimed that vaccines uh, eradicated the disease. And when you actually read the critical research on that, you find that that's simply not, not true. Um, so to give you an example, just one example, and we could talk for hours about it. Yeah. Um, in um, in the late uh, 1800s, like the 1890s, um, after uh, England had been uh, vaccinating uh, against smallpox for uh, 
you know, almost 100 years. The Encyclopedia Britannica asked um, a, uh, a doctor, um, Charles Creighton, he was uh, considered, you know, one of the most eminent doctors in London uh, to write the um, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, um, you know, paragraph, a couple paragraphs, and the entry for a vaccination. And so uh, Creighton sat down, and the first thing he did is he went out and he collected all of the statistics on the history of vaccination in England. And uh, what, what he read was that there was absolutely no relationship whatsoever between the incidence of smallpox and vaccination. If there was any relationship whatsoever, it was that smallpox increased as you increased vaccination. So he was so shocked by this that uh, he ended up risking his entire reputation and writing a very long entry for the Encyclopedia Britannica, which essentially said, vaccination, here's the entry. Vaccination is a myth that continues to persist in modern England. And then went on and listed out the statistics showing that vaccination uh, does, does not stop smallpox. It does not eradicate smallpox. Uh, he was then roundly attacked uh, by uh, the doctors, many doctors in London, uh, and the Encyclopedia Britannica was shut down. It was then bought by Rockefeller, and the editors were shifted to a new university. So we're talking about a suppressed history that's really, uh, it goes way back. Um, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'm just, because there's a lot to that, what you're saying. So like, and based on, so whenever we look at a piece of research that shows that someone, there was vaccines introduced and then the instance of that virus went down, is that marketing? Is that the... Well, it could be, it could be all sorts of things, right? Okay. Um, so it, it, first, you know, you have to look, you have to look carefully at the graph, right? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, we see, um, you know, the incidence of uh, pertussis go down uh, in the 19, I think it's the 1940s, okay? Um, and, and you can see in there a little graph and you can see vaccination is, is you know, it's higher when, when vaccination begins and it's lower when vaccination you know, then it goes down. But if you zoom out on that graph, you'll see that the, the incidence of pertussis dropping started, you know, 15 years or 20 years prior to vaccination. And it had already dropped 98%. And when you see that chart shown to you, uh, you know, by the CDC or something, they're not showing you the whole chart. They're just showing you the last 2% of that chart. So there, like there's numerous articles in the, in the published medical journals, um, which, uh, corroborate what I'm saying, which, which say vaccination is not the cause for the eradication of modern disease. That that's, that's printed in numerous public, you know, published, you know, medical journals by, you know, people at Harvard, right? Like, but, not people today, people, you know, 30, 40 years ago when we had a little, 40, 50 years ago, when we had a little bit more medical, um, there's a little bit more space 
to publish that kind of thing. Um, that space is being, you know, winnowed and winnowed and winnowed. So it's it's very hard to publish something like that today. But um, but that's out there in the research. Or you know, one of the things that we that we talk about at length uh, is the the story of polio, um, because it's this is one of those. Yeah, I mean, at least for me, when I was doing my research, I wanted to know like, what is, you know, is my son going to get polio if I don't give him the polio vaccine, right? And um, will other people in society potentially get polio if I don't give my son the polio vaccine, you know? And the, the story of polio is, is fascinating. And, you know, I interviewed some of the best people on it. Um, and... I'll tell the long story, but let me just tell a little little brief right. thing at the end, which is that um, when when uh, the medical system decided that they wanted to sell the vaccine as the cure, the so-called cure for polio, and they rolled the vaccine out, the the first thing they did after that was they changed the medical definition of polio right after they rolled the vaccine out. And it used to be that to, to be categorized as a polio victim, you had to be uh, paralyzed for more than six months because um, there, there's forms of paralysis that, um, that go away after a few weeks. And uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, the muscles and there, there's, there, there, there are you know, there was a, a, a woman named Sister Rose Kenny who developed a, a, a muscle relaxation technique that was incredibly effective that would help polio victims, um, you know, go away, uh, uh, that would help paralysis go away. So uh, they changed the definition so that it was only a couple of days. Uh, uh, it, they changed it from a couple of days to six months. Okay. So if you do that, you automatically eliminate 98% of the cases, right? If you're, if, if you're paralyzed for, you know, three or four days, the doctor says, okay, you have polio, but you have to be paralyzed for six months in order for it to count as a polio, def, you know, defined polio case. You, you've, you've immediately created a statistical situation that's, you know, totally different, but that's not talked about. So there's all sorts of statistical fraud that's going on today that's really similar. Uh, you know, like with COVID, so-called COVID and all that, um, you know, so like, I, I, it, this is where the, I always find these new frauds every like a couple of weeks and, <laughs> I, and I'm like, oh my God, I love like, so this is like three weeks ago, this was my favorite like fraud of the, of the week, um, which is, uh, and not to get too tangential, but I was like so excited about it. And I, had, I haven't had a chance to um, tell too many people about it besides my, my wife. Um, that uh, there is this, um, if you get the so-called COVID vaccine, if you get that um, and you get uh, sick, um, if, if, there, if you get sick within two to three weeks of getting the vaccine, uh, on their, in their statistical charts, uh, you 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 are counted as unvaccinated, not as vaccinated, okay? Because the story that they tell is that it takes two to three weeks for the vaccine to kick in, 
to get your body going, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so they're like, well, look, if you get sick for two or three weeks, we can't count you as vaccinated. So it, it gets pushed off, okay? And there's a, a, a statistics professor and mathematics professor in England who ran the statistics on what is, this, what is the mathematical impact of doing that, of saying you count as unvaccinated if you get sick within those first two weeks. And the statistical impact is that the vaccine will appear to have an effectiveness of 95%, even if it does absolutely nothing, simply based on that statistical categorization. Okay, so in other words, if you if you just gave people a 100% placebo mm-hmm. the whole time, but you categorize people as vaccinated and unvaccinated with this placebo, then you would automatically create a 95% quote-unquote effectiveness rate for the vaccine by doing that. And you know, so this, and, and if you look up the so you know so-called vaccine, it doesn't even reach 95%, the so-called claimed effectiveness rate. It doesn't even reach 95%, right? So it's it's just um, I, I know I've, I've sort of veered off into uh, that's all right. You know, talking about contemporary stuff. Is is that implying that then that most people got it within two weeks of getting a vaccine? That's the only way that would be create that statistical anomaly, right? In other words, if you get sick, if you get sick after, let's say it's it's it gets into pretty heavy statistics. So I don't want to like. Um, I don't want to misstate things, and I, and I don't want to bore your audience with with, <laughs> with, uh, with that. But let's just let's assume that um, like two percent of all people get sick every week. Okay. Okay. Just just randomly, two percent of all people get sick every week, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if you, what happens when you when you push the the two week you know, that, that when you create that, that two to three week area is you're pushing the people who have uh, been vaccinated into the unvaccinated category for this little period. And so it ups, it slightly ups the unvaccinated sickness category mm-hmm. and slightly dips the vaccinated sickness category. So it's a statistical effect that goes away after about four months, four to five months, right? Because it's just creating this, this sort of wave, this kind of statistical push, right? But what do we see? What do we see from even the claimed, you know, uh, mainstream uh, authorities on this kind of stuff? Oh, well, yeah, the, the, it, it wanes in effectiveness after, you know, four to five months, and that's why you have to get a booster, right? So we're seeing an exact mirroring of this in the marketing because, um, what I think what a lot of people don't realize is that so much of the um, not only is so much of the um, uh, system built on this kind of manipulation, but there's a whole there's a whole edifice, uh, a, a science, so-called scientific edifice that's been built to support this kind of thing. And it's uh, so, that, you know, they're not, quote unquote, lying. Right. That, that the, the, the effectiveness figures that are being presented to you are they are not 
quote-unquote lies. There, there's a reality, quote-unquote reality. To it. But you have to understand, you got to read the footnote. You got to understand what statistically is, is actually significant here about this and what's not. And, you know, the, no, it, it's, it, it, these, these are life and death footnotes, unfortunately, well, for people, yeah. right? Well, it's interesting. And then what I find, this isn't even the, the main fraud of like the documentary that you talk about. No, it's not even the main fraud. It's not tangents, exactly. Yeah. So I want to I wanna at least give you a chance to explain what that, that main fraud is. Because I'd never heard this until I looked into to your stuff. So I, I want to get into, into what the actual documentary is about. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. And thanks yeah. for you know, bringing me back. Yeah. Um, so it's really, it's really about the, 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 um, the fact that the entire field of virology is, uh, is best understood as a pseudoscience. This is, this is not a real scientific field by, by, by any serious definition of science, I would say, uh, any rigorous definition of science. Like uh, if you look in the history of philosophy of science, like Karl Popper is like a, considered like a great you know philosopher of science, and, and and you know by his definition of science, virology is a pseudoscience. Or um, if you say we're going to judge virology by does it adhere to the scientific method, mm -hmm. right? That this basic idea of the scientific method that we all learned in like eighth grade. And then like it's beaten into us in ninth grade and 10th grade and 11th grade. And, and it's, you know, sort of considered like the foundation of the enlightenment in many ways. Um, you know, does virology adhere to the scientific method? The answer is no, it does not. And so you say to yourself, well, what is going on? How, how did this field um, evolve? What, what's, the, what's the backstory here? And the backstory is that it, it, it was a sort of uh, an interesting idea at the beginning of the 20th century, um, maybe like late 1800s. Um, and it, it, it just, it, it, the truth is it just didn't pan out. It's just, it, it's not, it's never actually achieved the level of serious science. Now that's the, that's the sort of the philosophical or the critical interpretation of it, right? But it has achieved a, an extraordinary uh, significance in political and economic terms. It's become a very central field in modern medicine. And you know what we what we do is we look at what are the actual experiments that formed the history of this field, and what's the story of how this came to be, because uh, this essentially took off with an experiment in the 1950s um, and by this man named John Enders and, you know, grew and grew and grew and grew um, to the point where the entire world was shut down uh, in 2020 based on the word of this very small, very, 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 very small group of so-called scientists. And even, you know, 99.9% of doctors don't really understand what this field of virologists actually do in the lab. 
what their actual experiments are. And I, I remember interviewing doctors that are critical, that are highly critical of the medical system. And I would talk to them about, uh, you know, what goes on uh, in virology, and they had no idea. And these were the most educated on this topic. Uh, they, they, they literally had no idea. They, I, I was challenging them because, you know, from the perspective of the doctors and the scientists and the journalists and so on that I had been speaking to, um, they were talking about, they were, they were criticizing the vaccine, but they were still sort of talking about this idea that there is a SARS-CoV-2 virus out there, which is, once you understand the history of this field, is a preposterous idea. It's a preposterous idea. But it's so widely uh, accepted that it's very, um, it's, it's very hard for people to, for many people, and for some people are like, wow, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. But there's a lot of people who are like, whoa, that's wild what you're saying. How would you say that? You know, or something like, but this is science. This is just science. You know, and there's like, there's revelations that happen in science all the time. And this just happens to be the political economic, you know, history of this field. And, and it's important that people understand what it is, what's, What's going on here? Why are we hearing the things that we hear? It's not an accident. Uh, so in the first episode, to answer your question, in the first episode of the, of the, uh, of the film, uh, we, we take a look at the uh, experiments that were done, the published papers that were written uh, in which they claimed that a SARS-CoV-2 virus had actually been found. Right there's a there's a paper that comes out at the end of uh, 2019. It's pre-published at the end of 2019. It's published officially at the beginning of 2020, and it's a basically it says we have found a new virus. Okay, it's we're going to call it SARS-CoV-2, and and it publishes you know what the methodology is. How why can they say that? Right, you have to. It's a scientific paper. You have to back it up. Right, so. You, you could go and you can read this paper, and, but you have to have a, a background in the history of the field in order to, to, to untangle it, right? Because, you know, otherwise it's like, you know, uh, trying to read uh, some Latin treaties on, you know, demonology that was written, you know, at the top of some, you know, tower in, you know, uh, in, in Rome or something. And, and, and it's like, you know, how do you make sense of this? Well, you have to, it, it takes time. Um, but, uh, you know, what I did in the first episode is I, I picked up the phone and I called all these doctors and scientists who had read the paper and who were saying, hold on a second, like, everybody, like, let's take a breather here because I just read this paper and it's nonsense. So can we stop for a moment? And these people all called me back because nobody else was you know, you weren't going to, CNN wasn't going to put these people on the air, you know, and, um, and, it, you know, whether you find what they have to say compelling or not compelling, you know, uh, that's for, you know, you could judge it as, as an audience member, you can think about it, you can go read the papers, you could go understand uh, what the criticism is, what the counter arguments are, and all of that. Um, but I think that it's, 
it's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, you, you don't even have to care, right? Like you could not care. But um, to me, it's one of the most fascinating uh, topics I've ever, ever encountered in my whole life. So you, you got that, you read this piece, was it before everything was shutting down? Is that what you're saying? And that's when you were, or once, like when did you well, read this article based on them finding the new virus? Um, again, I, I, I could talk for hours, even just about this little tiny period. Um, but, uh, I had come across, um, I had come across a journalist named David Crow, and he had been a medical journalist since the, uh, late eighties, early nineties. And, um, he had a podcast called the infectious myth. And um, so as I was um, listening to uh, his podcast, um, and this was before code, I, uh, he started um, offering his perspective on what was happening in Wuhan. And um, so that, that was probably the first, um, uh, the first, sort of pers one of the first perspectives that that I uh that I was exposed to um and and he had been a journalist during the AIDS era and uh he had covered the dissident AIDS movement which was the the group of doctors and scientists who had challenged the uh government's position that there was a virus called HIV which caused a disease called AIDS. What I learned from David, one of the things that I learned from David was that there had been uh, this, this extraordinary number of uh, doctors and scientists uh, who, who had challenged the government's uh, claim that, 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 that there was this virus called HIV, which caused AIDS. And um, I grew up in the AIDS era. So this to me was like a really, hard pill to swallow. I mean, this, this was something like when I was a teenager, this was a huge deal. And, you know, everybody kind of knew AIDS was a sexually transmitted disease and, you know, it was caused by HIV. Like that was just, was, you know, it's the sky is, the sky is blue and, and, and that's also true, you know? So I had no idea that actually the, the level of um, doctors and scientists uh, that had challenged this and said that is not true was was really um, impressive. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the the man who was considered the country's greatest virologist, Peter Duisberg, had written an article, a published article um, about this thesis. Um, you know, in in the late eighties, uh, saying, well, actually, in, in the mid eighties, saying, hey, this. This cannot be true. This this cannot be true. This claim that that uh, that Robert Gallo, who was a, a NIH funded uh, so-called scientist, and uh, Tony Fauci and and Human Health Services, uh, this claim that they're putting out there that they have found the so-called AIDS virus, um, that here you know, here's sixteen reasons why logically that cannot be true and what happened to peter duisberg he was 
wildly attacked by uh, the government. Uh, his and you know, here was a man who had received, I think, three or four uh, National Academy of Science grants, which is the most prestigious grant you can receive in American science. Basically, the government says we we're so impressed with your work over the years. We're just going to give you a million dollars and you can do anything you want with it. Mm. I mean, it's very rare that you get that. That was the level of prestige he had achieved. But the moment he challenged this, um, you know, this dogma, all his funding was cut and he was attacked and attacked and attacked. So, uh, or Kerry, you know, Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize for his research uh, on, uh, you know, the PCR technique. Who came out and you know said uh, this? Th there's there's no science to support the claim that HIV causes that, that there is a, a HIV virus that causes AIDS. There's no there's no science to support that. And you know he was trying to get the word out to people, and you know his PCR technique was um, then um, hijacked by the government and used as a so-called test to claim whether or not you had HIV. And he was very publicly saying, you cannot do that. That, it, that does not have scientific justification. But it was a, a terrific device for the government to use to make the claim that they were making. And we, again, we can go into the footnotes of why that is and all that. But um, you know, one of the first people that I reached out to was Nancy uh, Turner Banks, and she was a, a gynecologist uh, at Harvard, and she had a um, uh, she had a medical degree from Harvard, and she also had an MBA from Harvard, and she had opened up her own um, uh, gynecology clinic, and so when AIDS broke out, she thought to herself, "Let me do the research on this and, and see what." You know, because I'm going to have people walking in here with this disease. I better understand what, what's going on. And, um, and she, uh, she was so shocked that, uh, about what she discovered when she actually read the, the literature in depth that she ended up writing two books about it um, and um, speaking out ferociously uh, about the, the medical cartel that was claiming this and saying this is fraud. And this is murderous fraud, murderous fraud. And um, I mean, I remember reaching out to her at the beginning of my documentary. She's one of the only people that refused to be in the documentary. And, and she said, Mike, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. The system's too big. It's too powerful. And I just don't, I don't have the will to, to fight them any longer. And, um, but I wish you the best of luck. Um, so, um, we're talking about a, a, so many, so many, so many really intelligent, thoughtful uh, people who really, you know, cared. And um, so uh, David Crow was immediately alerting me to how the, the uh, first papers out of Wuhan were misusing the PCR technique um, in claiming that they had found a new virus. And, um, and then Pretty soon after that, there was a doctor named Andrew Kaufman um, who uh, had done his um, undergraduate uh, studies in microbiology at MIT and then had gone on to become a psychiatrist. And he had um, 
read first papers out of Wuhan and was so disturbed by the the dichotomy of actually reading the papers and then seeing what was on the news that he decided to, to um, make a public video and speak out about it. You know, that, that, was, that was the beginning for me of trying to get to the heart of what was, what was the reality here uh, in terms of what were the scientific experiments that were actually being done? What were legitimate conclusions to um, take away from those experiments? And then contrasting that with what we were seeing in the news, which was just wildly different. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the underlying fraud that you talk about is that not, it wasn't about do vaccines work, do masks work, or this or that. It was literally that the virus itself didn't really exist or caused COVID-19. There, 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 first of all, there's absolutely no serious scientific evidence to show that there, there, that SARS, that there is a SARS-CoV-2 virus that exists. There is no, in three years of doing this research, I have yet to be presented with a serious piece of science that, that actually shows that. Uh, so that's on one side. Mm-hmm. On the other side, there's ample reason to say the idea that the world came down with uh, an infectious disease, you know, uh, <laughs> a, 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 new, a new infectious virus is also, you, you can't say that. It, it would be absurd to say that. In other words, if you look at the, if you look at the mortality uh, indices from 2020, right, you'll see that 2020 was actually a very, it was a relatively good year in terms of human sickness. Okay. It was, everybody was pretty, like we were, we were a little bit, uh, as a world doing a little bit better than normal. Okay. And that goes all the way up until in country after country after country until, uh, the lockdowns begin. Now the day, the day after lockdowns begin in each country mortality rates go through the roof they they fly up okay we see this massive increase here okay then we see like about a month or to three months of of high deaths and then they they all fall back down okay None of that is consistent with an infectious disease. None of that. In other words, if there was, so so this is the this is the like a, a you know we can, well I'll just keep going with this and then we'll go back to the fact that also the the, the entire concept of a virus is, is is silly. But if we if we just talk in this in this mortality index situation, okay, in other words. If there were a virus, a so-called virus that had been emanating out from China around the world that killed you, okay, there is, it would have to be, you know, something beyond the imagination of H.G. Wells for this virus to distribute itself 
throughout the world, like some kind of, you know, uh, you know, Viet Cong terrorist cell without hurting anyone, without killing anyone. And then wait until the days the, the day that lockdown is established and then decide, yeah, I'm going to start killing everybody. So I'm going to start killing everybody in, in France, also in Argentina, also, you know, in Australia. And, you know, this is all going to be coordinated, right? It's, it's, it's preposterous. So if you see a, a, a death spike like that, there are far better explanations. There are things that, that, are, that are consistent with a, with, a, with a spike, a sudden spike on a political date, right? It could be an alien invasion. That, that, that would make sense. Oh, the aliens invaded on March 21st. Boom. Everybody gets sick on March 21st, right? It could be uh, an earthquake. That would be consistent with a bunch of people getting sick on a specific date. But even by their own model, the, uh, the idea that you would suddenly see that, uh, that kind of spike, it's totally inconsistent with their own model. So, so I, I, can, I'm, I'm just, I can understand that there could be inconsistencies in the reporting, right? That all of a sudden we started reporting, if someone dies in a car accident, but they have a virus, oh, that's, that's a COVID death. So that could skew the numbers. But people were getting sick from something, right? Or my, my, it, I'm just having a hard time conceptualizing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's on purpose. That's that. That's on purpose because the whole way we think about this is um, is like that. And that's that's why I want to sort of come back almost to my wife's illness, right? Okay. Where you think, oh my God, like she she contracted something or she had something genetic, and and there it is. Or um, and I, I'm going to answer your question, but I just want to sort of. Um, give people another perspective on this stuff. Um, when my son was about, a, I don't know, maybe eight months old, he started crawling around all the time in our apartment and he got really sick. And, uh, and we thought to us, oh no, like what should we do? Uh, he was getting a little bit of a fever. And uh, we thought, should we give him some Tylenol? We know it's a little bit dangerous, uh, but you know he's 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 got a cough and he's got a fever, and uh, we're really worried about him. And I had just gotten back from uh, this was back when we were doing our vaccine research. I had just gotten we had just gotten back from um, a long conversation with a, a wonderful doctor named Larry Pilevsky, and I had been thinking about what he had to say at the time. And I'm thinking, why? Let me step back for a second. Why might our son have gotten sick? What could it be? And I looked down and I realized we had just bought this huge rug at West Elm. And, you know, we lived in Brooklyn and we you know, this was a big purchase for us at the time, like a nice big rug from West Elm. And I looked down at it and I realized there's all of this material that's coming off of it. And my son is spending, you know, eight hours a day 
crawling around on it, you know, an inch from the surface of this thing, sucking in this material all day. But of course he's going to get sick. So the first thing we did is we rolled up that carpet and we threw it out and we vacuumed the whole apartment and we got rid of all that stuff and we mopped and we cleaned. My son got better in like two hours. Okay. It was like once we step away from this contagious mystery, um, mystification of disease. This is what all of these doctors and scientists have taught me. Okay. I'm not just trying to like spread nonsense here. I'm trying to share what these people have, have shared with me as best I can. Okay. Um, once we step away from that, we start to see that there's actually many, many, many reasons why we get sick. And, we, and if, if we can become cognizant of it, then we actually have a chance to get better. And that's, that's what I want people, I hope people can start to do with so-called COVID, okay? Because they're being sold this story that doesn't actually have real thought behind it, like caring thought behind it. And they, they have an opportunity to step back and say, okay, if I got sick in 2020, let me think about what might have actually been the cause. It might have been something in their personal environment. It might have been something in our larger political environment. But to say, oh, it must be a virus. It must be SARS-CoV-2 because that's what our institutional surroundings are telling us. Then you're just back in the world of your mind is being monopolized by a system that, you know, I'm saying it's worth it to think twice about what they have to say. And I could, you know, I, I just told the story of my son. I could tell other stories like that in my own life and other people's lives and so on all day, right? Um, so, you know, if, and, and there's, you know, some of it's just ridiculous, right? Like I have a friend of mine who, um, you know, he was like, oh man, I got, I got COVID really bad, you know, in 2020. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, and then he went on later on to, to, uh, to tell me that also in 2020, he had spent, you know, almost, what was it? Like three, three days a week. So like Friday, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, for the entire winter on, on a Coke vendor, you know? So like, here's a, this guy on one side, he basically said, wow, I had the craziest winter of my life. I did more cocaine than I've ever done. Oh, my God. Wow, what a winter. And then he said, oh, and then also in uh, March, uh, April, I don't remember what, I got really sick. I, I, you know, it was COVID. It had to be COVID because that's when everybody was talking about COVID, right? So it's... You know, it's ridiculous. Like, obviously, if you do that, you're going to get sick in the spring. You know, like nobody's superhuman. Maybe, maybe like some young guy could do it or something like that. I don't know. But 
Um, you, you know, if you do X, Y is going to happen. Is it sort of reasonable, you know, assumption there? So that's a sort of more ridiculous things. But th there's other things like sicknesses that are that are harder to um, diagnose. They're, they're, that are you know you don't know why you know you are feeling such serious fatigue syndrome all the time or um you know why um you you know have a rash or or whatever but you can actually investigate it you can you can you can discover these things and there's real reasons for them um and so it you know people have the option to say oh, okay i can believe in this this entity the SARS-CoV-2 virus entity, and that must—that's why I got sick because all these institutional people tell me that. Or I can step back and I can say, okay, that's one theory, and now let me look at some maybe some other reasons. And you know, if you go back into like American history, uh, at at the beginning of the 20th century, again, there were um, a number of fields that were really growing in terms of research. Uh, so one of them was nutrition, right? The, the, in the um, in the 1800s, the United States had had a very serious pellagra crisis of um, uh, of people becoming sick. They didn't know why. The set of symptoms was named pellagra, and they believed it was a contagious disease. Um, and it really hit people in the South, I think. Um, and eventually, what they learned was that it was a vitamin, it was a, nu a nutritional deficiency, okay? Uh, probably stemming from the fact that the knowledge of how to properly treat corn had been lost. And uh, so people weren't really getting the nutritious aspects of corn, even though their diet was corn-based, okay? So um, out of the pellagra crisis, uh, there became a huge field of scientists wanted to study nutrition. We had scurvy, we had pellagra. It was this growing field that, you know, I, I, I think to many older cultures, it's not a surprise to learn that food affects your health. But to, you know, uh, <laughs> to Western American medicine, this was a new, a, a, a new concept to, to some Aspects. So there was this new research money that was put into it. We're going to do all this research. Uh, there was also a growing field called toxicology, um, which looked at what are the dangers of all the new uh, chemical products that are, uh, uh, you know, um, grown in our society since the rise of uh, manufacturing. That was growing very quickly. They they were finding all sorts of reasons to be wary of these products. Well, both of those fields were shut down, essentially, uh, after World War II. And the, the field that was pushed after World War II was virology. So if you say, why did I get sick? And the answer is virology. Well, that's the only answer that's been funded seriously since 1950s. Whereas there are, you know, maybe you didn't sleep enough. Maybe you didn't eat right. Maybe there's mold in your bathroom. There's a million reasons why you could get sick, right? But we've been taught not to think about any of that. 
and and just to eat the soup, just eat eat the virus soup. You know, that's just just don't think about any of this history. So, you know, um, did uh, you know did more people get sick in 2020 than in 2015 or uh, the statistics are very unclear on that. I mean, it's, it's, there's no definitive case to say that more people got sick. There's a, there's definitely a, a rise in mortality. There's, there's this spike, right? From the day that lockdown started until the beginning of the summer, there's a, a huge spike in some countries. Uh, and you know, we talk about that in the documentary, and I, I've written about that at length on Substack. That sadly, tragically, the best understanding of that spike is that sick people that were sick for we I, I can't tell you why, who knows why, something in their lives were misdiagnosed when they arrived at the hospital. They were told they had COVID and they were essentially killed by the medical system. That, that is the only really rigorous way to understand the data. And, you know, there were many different um, ways in which the medical system did that. And I don't think that most doctors had evil in their hearts or something, but, um, but that's, what, that's what the data says. I mean, if you, you know, just, you know, most people, for instance, um, you know, know about the ventilators, right? Which was this, this, oh, we got to get the ventilators. We got to get the ventilators, right? So I was, I was watching the ventilator story very carefully because David Crow, the medical journalist, had told me uh, all the way back in, um, at the very beginning of this thing, he said, I'm, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. They're going to call for ventilators. And it's going to be a misdiagnosis and they're going to murder people. And it's, it's going to be very sad. And he knew that because he had very carefully studied the SARS-CoV-1 um, story. And he had seen that go down. And he, and he wrote furiously telling people, please, we must become aware of this before this tragedy happens. But we all witnessed it. And, you know, so, you know, the, the mortality rate on ventilators, we knew from the beginning was like 90%, okay? Um, so you got a nine out of 10 chance of, being, of dying if you were put on a ventilator, right? I mean, you have to be, you have to be you know, forcibly paralyzed. You have to be, you know, um, you have to have a metal. It's a horrible thing. And, um, and if you read, uh, even like the Wall Street Journal, um, you could see the doctors, were ventilating people, not because they thought that ventilation would was the best thing for that patient. The doctors were ventilating people because they were so scared of so-called COVID that they wanted to protect the hospital staff from patients who were who they thought were breathing it out onto the staff. And so they wanted to completely restrict the ability of their, their own patients to breathe out in their hospital. 
So what they thought they were doing was sort of trying to help their respiratory situation while at the same time protecting their nurses and other doctors. Okay. They did not think this was, very few doctors thought this was the number one best thing they could do. There, there are some, but those who had studied the literature are pretty open about um, saying, look, we killed these people. And, you know, there were lawsuits, there have been lawsuits in Italy about it. Uh, and, you know, they've, they've come out and they said, look, yeah, we killed these people. We thought we were doing the right thing. And it happened on Max. But that's a story that hasn't been, you know, you're not going to read that in the New York Times. Yeah. Why and why? Why is I, there... I great I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. And, and why the secrecy and the suppression of this aspect of the story? Like I said, I never heard of it until running across you. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to... It's not that it's like I don't believe you or I disagree. It's just like I like getting new information, but it's like it's hard because it goes against everything that you're told, right? So why? What's the motivation of legacy media to to push this down? And how do they get it so coordinated across different countries, the countries that don't agree with each other? How are they all in in cohesion with with this one side of the story? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a couple of different things. I mean, um, I, I there are outliers who are seriously attacked okay so that's and we can talk about that because <laughs> it's interesting but it's not the mo it's not the the main the bulk the main way that this goes down is a, it's a decades-long process of establishing a singular monopolized paradigm a singular way of looking at the world and so you know, what happened in the 1950s when John Enders published his, um, his first paper in which he claimed that he had found a way to isolate a virus, um, this method, the so-called method, was seized on um, by the pharmaceutical industry because, you know, if, if you say that people get sick from a virus, that's something you can kill with, with, with a pill or with an injection, theoretically, right? Um, whereas, you know, so, I mean, other solutions like nutrition or the removal of, of dangerous chemicals or pollutants from our, our soil, from our air, from our water, the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to make money on that, right? Um, and, and if you look at the history of polio, you know, so this goes all the way back to the, you know, beginning, the early 1900s, um, you see a, you see the first cases of polio break out exactly in uh, the places where a new uh, industrial chemical was being used. And, um, as that as the use of that chemical spreads, we see the rise of paralysis, you know, not just chronologically, but also geographically. Right. So it's like right in this town in Massachusetts where uh, this or, or, organophosphate is used by a tannery because this new chemical comes from France that you can use and it really helps you with with tanning leather. Oh, it's great. So they use that and then they dump it in the river. Well, it's right in the, the village, just downriver from there, 
that we see the first cases of uh, polio, what's called polio, in America. And as this organophosphate becomes more prevalent, we see more and more cases of polio. Well, it becomes very uh, prevalent because it, it, they discover that you can kill um, a fruit-eating moth with it. And so we get a huge, you know, they start spraying all the field, fields of New England with it, and all of a sudden we get mass polio in New England. It becomes even more prevalent because they realize you can kill mosquitoes with it, and they change its chemical form a little bit. It becomes DDT, and they carpet bomb the United States with DDT. I mean, it's just carpet. There's just massive amounts. And now we see a national rise in childhood paralysis. Well, you know, if you own Dow Chemical and you own the, the, the plants and the, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies, you're not going to make any money from people discovering that you've just paralyzed their babies. Right? This is a this is a huge political catastrophe. But if you can sell people on the idea that the real reason that, that their their baby is paralyzed, their child is paralyzed, is that there's a flying disease monster that invaded them. They're just they're unlucky and they got this polio virus. Well, that's a much better way of reframing how to think about childhood paralysis, why you might have gotten sick. So we see, you know, that, that's a political interpretation of why we see um, this particular research paradigm that John Enders creates in 1954. This becomes funded massively, whereas toxicology, nutrition, these things are kicked you know, their funding dries up. And um, so, you know, we're just seeing the, the you know, 75 years later, we're, we're reaping the, the, the you know, the, that, that, that's, that's what was cooked up, unfortunately. Um, that's how we, so that's how we think now. And is this, you know, earlier you made the, the comment that, um, you kind of wanted to talk about the concept of viruses as a whole and the fact that they're silly. Is it that all these viruses were just a way to explain away, you know, the real or hide the real reasons people were getting sick? Yeah. So the concept of viruses, the modern concept of viruses begins at uh, basically in the late 1800s. And um, in the mid 1800s, uh, Robert Koch, the German scientist, had um, uh, used this new invention, the microscope, to discover bacteria. And when he uh, looked at uh, human, you know, blood samples and so on. He was able to correlate some bacteria with disease. And so it was theorized at that point that uh, there are little things called bacteria which cause disease. And that um, basically becomes modern germ theory. Okay. 
Um, there are there are really significant problems with with what Robert Koch said and did, but let's just assume that that makes sense. Okay, so you know, for instance, when he looked at the fluids of a cholera victim, he was able to find a particular bacteria that he didn't usually find in people that didn't have cholera. Okay, so he named what he saw on the microscope the cholera bacteria. Okay, now there were other sicknesses like pellagra where he couldn't find a bacteria. And all the new scientists that were then emerging in this exciting field of using microscopes, they couldn't find a bacteria for pellagra. So they, some of them, theorized that what must be going on is there must be another organism that's just like a bacteria, but it's even smaller. It's so small that you can't see it in a microscope. And they called that, again, some of them called that a virus. Okay. And so the field begins with a theoretical leap. Just and I, it's it's a it's a hunch. Maybe there's something tiny, tinier than a bacteria, and they've never proved the hunch. <laughs> what what we've seen develop since then is um, I sort of equate to like um, like like the modern evolution of CGI. Um, you know, if you believed in a unicorn in 18, um, you know, in 1500, and you wanted to explain a unicorn, you would paint a unicorn. And if you wanted to um, explain a unicorn in the 1870s, you might take a picture of a horse and then take a picture of, you know, a cone, and then, you know, make a photographic, you know, composite image and say that there's a unicorn. And if, you know, and getting all the way up until, you know, modern Hollywood and you might say, hey, oh, look, I can make a CGI unicorn. It looks super awesome. It looks totally real. Have you proven that a unicorn exists? Certainly not. But what you've done is you've, you've over the decades, you've developed more and more sophisticated techniques for the representation of a fictional entity. And so what we've seen happen um, in the field of virology is, is akin to that, is that you have this idea, there's a tiny little uh, organism that flies through the air and it invades your body and it attacks your cells and it you know, rips them open and it sends its DNA in there, this whole story. Um, what we've seen is a number of, I, I hate to call them experiments, but let's just call them experiments, procedures in the lab, which paint a picture, theoretically, of what could be going on. Well, there are certainly pictures of viruses under a microscope, correct? Or am I, are we saying that it's always an illustration of what a virus would look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. Okay, so what we have is we have pictures from the lab, and then we are given a story about what those pictures say. 
so you can look up, you know, we all know theoretically what a, a, a SARS-CoV-2 virus looks like, right? So, of course, you know, what you see on the news and da 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 that's all CGI. That, that's, even the CDC will tell you that that's CGI, right? But those CGI images are supposed to be based on um, a, a, what's called an electron micrograph image. And if you look at that, what, what happens with an mic, electron micrograph image is you take a, a sample, a human sample, um, you know, say snot, and you mix it with all sorts of things, and we could talk about that. But you then um, take a little piece of that mixture, and you um, and you smash it, and you shoot metal at it. And once it's covered, in, once it's been mixed, smashed, and covered in metal, you put it in this machine that. Um, well, the way they explain it is they say it shoots electrons at it. Even that's not really accurate, but let's take that as it is. They say they shoot electrons at it, and you get a kind of reverse image of uh, what you're looking at. And what you can see is essentially little circles um, when you look at some, um, some cell samples. Sometimes you could see little circles. And so it was claimed by, for instance, the first paper in, in, out of Wuhan that that's the SARS-CoV-2 virus. There, that little circle, and you can see it has a little bit of a crown, and thus we're gonna we believe it's a crown virus, a coronavirus. So that's the claim, is that, hey, that little circle there, that's the virus. But there's actually many things in that scenario which can look like a circle. And it's such a devastating um, problem um, and it's such an important problem that uh, there are a number of uh, electron micrograph specialists who have spoken out, and you can read in the published research, it's very clear where they say, you know, it has been claimed that these images are, you know, SARS-CoV-2, but you cannot make that claim because there are many We've known for decades now that you can see a circle like that in these images. And for decades, we have called these circles vesicles, uh, ESVs. Um, and they're a regular part of uh, tissue. And um, so on what basis did this scientist in Wuhan claim that the circle is SARS-CoV-2 and not an ESV, because as is, you know, this is well known in the research. Even if you read the Annals of Virology or the Society of Virology um, Association papers, they say you cannot use a photograph to say we have found a virus. You cannot just look at that. It's like it's like if, if we went. Uh, and we flew a blimp over um, a great adventure, you know, Six Flags or something. And I mean, I mean, it, the analogy is kind of ridiculous, but it, a, a much this this is being nice to the to the 
to the papers out of Wuhan. It's like we flew a blimp over over Six Flags, and we saw a circle, and we said, "That's my grandpa." I know it's my grandpa because my grandpa wears a cowboy hat. Hmm. Well, many people who wear hats, and there's many other things that are circles. So you can't just say, just because I saw circle, I know it's X or I know it's Y, when we actually know there's many reasons that you can see that. So this is just kind of a, 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 a but it's a wonderful technique for, selling the world on an idea because you need an image. It was so fast that we saw these images of, of so-called SARS-CoV-2 distributed throughout the world. And, it, you know, it's like, it, it's, it's really vital to the marketing system that people are, are able to connect a, a visual picture to what's being talked about. And um, sadly, that's, you know, if you, if you read, the, if you actually read the literature critically, you could see it's right there in black and white that the, this, this, this is not, you cannot make this claim. This should be retracted. I mean, they say this should be retracted, but it's never retracted. And, yeah. and that's what happens over and over and over again. Well, you talk about the distribution of information. What good or quality journalists are out there from your perspective and why should we care what your perspective is anyway <laughs> you don't have to care what my perspective is my god um haven't i have i have i not made a case yet um <laughs> uh this great journalist celia farber is the best aids journalist um was, was the be one of the best aids journalists if not the best aids journalist back in her day and she's still out there kicking ass i mean she's still writing articles and uh, she's an amazing journalist. Um, there's um, there's very few that that will publicly write about the virus issue. Um, very very few. There there are good journalists like Alex Berenson, who's been great on you know uh, the vaccine and on the censorship. Matt Taibbi on the censorship. Um, but, uh, you know, Steve Kirsch on the vaccine, um, the dangers of the vaccine. Um, on the virus issue, you're really getting into like more like the hardcore scientists who um, they're just not being covered. Uh, oh, John Rappaport, my God. John Rappaport is the best journalist to follow on, on all of this stuff. Um, but he's 80, 80 years old now. And, um, you know, uh, but he's he's great. I mean, he's really covering this, you know, left and right. Twenty uh, first Century Wire covers this. You know, I uh, uh, Children's Health Defense uh, again. They are scared, I think, to touch the the virus, the, the problems with virology, because they get so much support from uh, dissident doctors who um, are are aren't yet ready to, to, to go there. Um, but you know, I, uh, Mary Holland, who was, uh, the head of CHD, you know, we did a long interview together and, um, you know, she, she was great. Um, and, and besides the virus issue, I mean, basically everything else on this topic, they're, 
they're amazing. They've, they've had great, so children's self-defense has had great stuff um, on what's going on. So there's, there are voices out there and you can follow them. No. And what I like about your perspective is it doesn't appear at least to be politically based. It's more on like true research, these ideas and come up with, with that information yourself. What is it that the message that you want people to get when they listen to you? Wow. Um, I think that, um, we have a, an opportunity to rethink um, uh, health politics. Um, and um, I think that if, if there, there are doctors and scientists and journalists and lay people um, like myself and others who have looked very deeply into these issues and they're very thoughtful people, um, it, with a, from a whole wide range. Uh, and I think it's really worth it to give their perspective uh, some time because um, they're honest people. And, um, you know, look, some of them, like Carrie Mullis back in the day, won Nobel Prizes. Um, you know, Stefan Scolio, who's an Italian biochemist that I spoke with, I mean, he's nominated for a Nobel Prize by the U.S. Uh, Assistant Surgeon General. Um, you know, uh, Stefan Laka, who's a, excuse me, who's a, a, a former virologist who left the field and gave up his, his career because he realized that this is a, a, a faulty field, a pseudoscience. Um, so these are really um, thoughtful, caring people who have sacrificed tremendously in order to share this um, information. And um, there's uh, my life, my health has improved uh, dramatically once I was able to understand how the system works. And I think our political realm can improve dramatically when people understand how the system works. I think our economic lives can improve I think we're going to be, you know, the, the more we actually understand the history of what's gone on, uh, the, the wealthier we're going to be because we're going to stop wasting money on this, uh, both out of our pockets and out of the, the government, um, you know, uh, spending money on this. Uh, I think we're going to have a more honest conversation with each other. Um, there's just tremendous upside from just thinking about it and talking about it. There's really no downside. Uh, so uh, I hope that people will, you know, continue to um, explore this issue. I mean, if they're if they're still listening at this point, uh, then uh, hopefully they will. Well, and is, is, is it that hope that really motivated you to do the documentary in the first place? It's just get letting people to see in a succinct manner this is the the other information that's available yeah i mean on some level i think that that that's true but you know i don't want to like cast myself as some kind of hero like i i also think this would be a great film i was like wow this is like this would be awesome like i, I want to make it i want to tell this amazing story i can't believe nobody's told this story you mm -hmm. know or that was a big part of it and a big part of it was also just I kind of wanted to, to, yeah, there, there, there's an angry part of me that wanted to make this movie um, because um, 
I've spent, you know, 15 years now uh, doing medical research and um, seeing my own life improve from that research. And, um, and then all of a sudden, this onslaught, uh, this unbelievable onslaught erupted. And they were coming for me and my wife and my son. And I, I was pissed. And I'm still pissed. And I wanted to sort of throw down the gauntlet and say, what are you, how could you do this? How could you do this? How could you do this to my child? I, I'm, I, I, I'm not willing to stand and, and let you trample uh, what I know to be the actual historical record. You can't do that. Uh, you, you, I, I, I wanted to, to expose these characters in some way. And so I, I, you know, I don't think I'm all, um, you know, uh, you know, idealistic and all of that. I, I am, I, I really want to improve people's lives, but I, I'm also pissed and, yeah. and, uh, and I just want these people to go away. Well, at least that's an honest take on on the motivations that you had, right? And there seems to be some correlation between these spikes in uh, pandemics and election years, right? And we have another one coming. So what is it, if people want to do their own research or learn more about you and, and find out some of the information that you have, what's the best place for them to do it? Oh, thanks. Um, well, the documentary series, uh, you could see it at theviraldelusion.com. Um, again, theviraldelusion.com. Um, we've been hit with a number of malware attacks, so I, I couldn't say that for a little while, but I can say that again. Um, if uh, I think that's the best place to start. Um, I have a substack where I, you know, Mike Wallach, The Viral Delusion, or you can read, um, you know, a little bit um, about these topics. Um, there's a fantastic book called Virus, Virus Mania, which um, was written by a German doctor um, that I interviewed, um, Klaus Kohnlein, um, and he uh, and a journalist named Torsten Engelbrecht. That's a really terrific book. You can go back a hundred years and you can read Eleanor McBean's *The Poison Needle*, uh, you know, from like the nineteen twenties. Um, there's uh, you can read uh, *Pasteur vs. Bouchamp*, which is a, a really fantastic indictment of Louis Pasteur and the birth of um, early vaccinology. Um, there's 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 a lot of great material out there. You can read. Uh, uh, Curtis Cost, my friend Curtis Cost is an activist in New York. He wrote a book called Vaccines Are Dangerous. It's very straightforward. Um, you can read Morris Beale. Um, uh, you can read Nancy Turner Banks, uh, uh, AIDS, Opium, Diamonds, and Empire. Um, there's just a lot of um, terrific material uh, out there, you can read Vax, uh, uh, Dissolving Illusions by Suzanne Humphreys. She was a, a kidney specialist in Maine who um, her patients were being vaccinated against her will. 
So she saw their um, their kidney conditions uh, going down, and uh, she couldn't understand why the hospital would um, uh, would would violate the the um, authority of, of its own doctor. And she ended up writing a magnificent book uh, about the history of smallpox and polio. Uh, you can read The Moth and the Iron Lung. Um, that's a great book. Um, yeah, you know, some of these books, they they still take virology at their word. Um, oh, Jim West, he's fantastic. Uh, DDP. Um, uh, he, he wrote a, polio, a book called Polio, uh, Toxicology versus Virology. Um, you can read David Rasnick. Um, just go to his website, davidrasnick.com. Um, I think if you want to watch videos, there's nobody better than Tom Cowan. Um, he's got a fantastic, uh, weekly, uh, like 45 minute video that he does every week. Um, there's a lot of resources, but I would, you know, recommend starting with my documentaries. So. Of course. And we'll put a link to the, the documentary in the show notes and everything. And, um, I just want to say thanks. I know we went longer than probably expected, but I appreciate your, your willingness to, to discuss these things and kind of be open about it. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, even if listeners on the surface disagree with the, the context of it, at least be open-minded enough to see that, you know, there's opportunities for more research and more understanding about motivations behind certain topics. Well, I'm very grateful that you had this conversation with me. And um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm inspired. I'm inspired um, because, I, you know, I get to do a fair amount of um, radio shows by people who, you know, like doctors and people who already knew this um, perspective. But it's honestly, it's, it's really inspiring when I meet somebody like yourself who's um, just open to having a conversation, you know. Um, so it's great. So thank you. Awesome, man. Appreciate it.